Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. There's like 13, 17 or something different holidays that happen in between the end of November and the first part of January. So happy all of those holidays. Oh, happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> happy holidays. Uh, I'm joined by Bailey Perkins. Hello. Hello, Andy. Also, Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? <laughs> Delayed response there. Um, uh, welcome to the show. This will be our final episode of Let's Pod This for 2020, the year that just keeps on giving. Um, I, we'll, we'll start with COVID and vaccine-related updates. We'll talk about indictments in the, ca- the governor's um, cabinet. We'll talk about candidates being thrown off the ballot. And probably some other stuff in this episode. What a way to round out the year, right? This is not totally indifferent from how we started the year, it feels like. Um, with one notable exception in my life, um, I will sound as you know straightforward as I can. Listeners, as some of, you, some of you may have seen on social media this week, my mother passed away on Wednesday night um, due to COVID-19. Um, so at this very moment, I'm doing okay, which is why we're recording. Also, this is a welcome reprieve from thinking about that. Um, so it sucks. I don't know what else to say. That's that's about it. Yeah, it's I mean, whole swirly this mess is, stuff. Yeah. So it's been a very like emotional week. Um, like obviously for you, for sure, Andy. Um, I think yeah, yeah. probably for a lot of people, it's been an emotional week for me. Like it's like these, like, I don't even want to say like highs and lows. Cause that's too, like, that's, that's too, yeah. um, that sounds like Low, superfluous, lows it's and too lowers. simple, but like, yeah, well, I mean like, so Tuesday, you know, people are probably aware if you're breathing and read anything that, um, uh, across the nation, people uh, started getting their uh, coronavirus vaccinations this week. We had approval last week of the Pfizer vaccine. We talked about that a little bit on the pod. Uh, distribution started. Oklahoma got its first shipment earlier this week and probably started vaccinating healthcare workers. Um, so that's been uh, like for me, that's something that's been pretty like emotional to like see and experience that there's like finally this like we feel like we're like we have something like we're maybe you know, can start kind of um, a lot of people have used the verbiage, like starting to like fight back against COVID, which I don't really like that phrasing, but like just feeling like, like we have like a tool now, right? Like there's an um, something there, but then that's coupled with, you know, like first, first and foremost, um, first and foremost, um, like Andy, the, the loss of your mom, who is just an absolute, um, delight and gem of a person and the time is time that I got to spend with her is just tragic. Um, finding out more patients of mine that have are either hospitalized or that have, have died this week. Um, it's like, there's this like kind of bright spot in the middle of what is still a really dark time. And, and so it's this, it's just this very like, well, I, I don't think, know. Does that make, does it make yeah. sense at all? Like, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And I, I think it was uh, Mayor Holt who phrased it in a, a way that that was very salient, where he said, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's it's sunlight as long as we keep doing the things we're supposed to do, keep wearing masks, keep socially distancing. If we let up on those things, that light in the tunnel becomes a train and it is coming for us, right? And so I was like, ooh, that's a good a good switch there, right? Like it's a slightly a horror movie, but it as... 2020 is, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. Bailey, what's up on your end? You yeah. you weren't here last week because you were sick with COVID. How are you feeling? Yes, um, I thank the listeners who were sending their their thoughts and prayers my way. Um, I feel a lot better than I did several days ago. 
Um, it feels very scary to lose your smell and taste. Um, I didn't realize how important those senses were to me until I didn't have them. And so um, grateful for the support of um, the Let's Pod This crew, especially for walking me through different things that um, I need to be taking and monitoring, you know, um, the oxygen levels in my blood and things like that. And so that helped me to get along through this time. Um, I've been thinking back to when we first started talking about this virus, I don't think we ever imagined feeling um, grief and, and mourning at this time. Today was my grandfather's funeral a few hours ago, um, and he died from COVID complications as well. And so um, I'm grateful to uh, be one of those folks um, on the up and up with this virus. Um, one thing I did learn is that even after you know your time of quarantine, um, you can still test positive for having the virus, and the virus may stay in your body for up to five weeks or so. And so, but it doesn't mean that I'm contagious anymore. It just means that the virus is still present, and so I'm still going to be taking my vitamins and resting and wearing my mask, watching where I'm going and things, and um, even reading about when it's my opportunity and time to take the vaccine. Um, it's in, been encouraged that even if you have had COVID, to still take the vaccine as an additional safeguard. I know that um, you guys talked about last week, I believe, um, how long the antibodies may last in, in protecting you and defending you. And so I know I plan on getting the vaccine once it is available to the public. And so um, COVID's not a game. It's not fun. In fact, I had a, a friend of mine who's um, in a fraternity and uh, he mentioned to me, he's a, he's a, a football coach then he contracted COVID. And so he sent me a message and we've been talking back and forth. And today is the day that he lost his smell. And I'm like, I know that feeling and how scary it may feel. And, and especially not knowing, you know, how long it'll take for your smell to come back and all of all of those different symptoms that come with it. And so, um, yeah, COVID is real. It's, um, it's a trip and I, I will share because listeners, you're, we're all friends here. Um, in case you're wondering what happens and it's different for every family, but what happens after you lose someone to COVID? Um, most of us have been around and had a loss in our family and, you know, friends and family come by and bring food and all of that, but it makes it really hard, right? Like, and so we're, we are not having that. A few folks have dropped off, you know, food on the porch or, you know, scheduled a Postmates situation, um, which is always, you know, appreciated. For, for my family, there's like this additional challenge that my, so my grandmother had COVID and then she moved in with my parents after discharge from the hospital. Um, and then two days later, my mom went to the hospital and my grandma has congestive heart failure. So she's on this like no salt diet and what people normally bring like from the church, right? is like a bunch of delicious chili, fried, fried chicken, chili, casseroles, enchiladas all this stuff that um, would definitely kill grandma, right? Like, and so- um, You mean that's the salt in it? What? Well, yeah. <laughs> and so just- no, that, that's, to, like, that's, that's, There's sodium in that? <laughs> trying to figure out like, okay, well, I, you know, the neighbor called yesterday when I was over there and was like, we want to bring food. And my dad was like, thanks, but no. Like, let, it's just, it is, it is one more headache in a situation, particularly for us, because my mom was the one that handled all that stuff. Like she was definitely the, the central figure in our whole family, you know, immediate and extended. And so um, without her ability and working knowledge of all of this, like we're all playing catch up. And so, you know, dad, like mom paid all the bills and dad's having to, he's got all that now, but he's also like having to deal with grandma's stuff. And so I've just been trying to hang out over there um, but we can't all go because hospice is there frequently. And I have not, somehow I'm, have not yet had the virus. My sister to our knowledge has not had it either or her family. And we're all, you know, trying to protect ourselves so that I don't infect my wife or the baby or my mother-in-law. Um, and it's just like a, everything is harder in 2020, even hard things are harder, which I didn't think was possible. So well, Andy, I have the inverse. 
today. Um, so I know exactly what you mean from the other lens of I made the decision not to go to Lawton to see my family um, and be there um, in our time of mourning because I didn't want my family members to have not been exposed to COVID to potentially be exposed, especially because like today would be day 10 for me for the time of when I tested positive. And so um, as that extra layer of precaution um, to do what I can to bubble wrap my family, I made the decision to um, stay home and I watched my grandfather's funeral from my TV screen, which feels so um, weird and, and incomplete. Um, but I think that's a reflection of what this year has been for so many people. And it's not lost on me that I'm just one of hundreds of thousands of Americans who have had that same experience of not being able to honor their loved ones who have passed on in the way that they wanted to because they've either been infected by this virus or they were exposed to it or it just wasn't safe to gather. So yeah. um, it's really yeah. changed a lot of things. I do want to say before, before we move on to the political discussion that uh, a big thanks to all the doctors and nurses at Mercy Hospital where my mom was. Honestly, to doctors and nurses everywhere, but from a personal note um, to nurses, Melissa, Kayla, Allie, um, and those are just the names I remember. Uh, they were all terrific answering questions, you know, um, Dr. Lee, Dr. Hawk, all these folks. Um, Allie in particular, I don't know anyone's last name, but Allie was there with us. She brought us upstairs, let us see my mom. Uh, we were there when she passed, um, cried with us before and after. And um, and as we walked down the hallway, my sister, my dad, and I, we were talking about how sweet they were and also how hard it's got to be for them doing this multiple times a day, every day, right? In many cases. And so, um, and, you know, seeing the ICU full and watching the nurses have to gown up masks and shields and gloves and all that stuff every time they went in there. And, and like, it's a huge, um, a lot of effort, right? It's not just simple. Um, and so I, like we were leaving, everything was for the most part, you know, we're ready to go. We've come out of the room, signed whatever paperwork. And then she, the nurse remembered, Oh, you know, our mom had some personal items in a bag, but they were in her room. So she's like, oh, okay, hang on. So she had to go run, find another gown, get her mask and everything, you know, put it all on, go in there to retrieve like a, you know, trash bag of stuff, bring it out and then take everything off, sanitize the mask again, like hang everything back up. It's like a several minute ordeal in and out of a room, even just to like grab something. Um, yeah. And, you know, for many patients that are on ventilators, they have to rotate them between their back and their stomach. And that requires multiple nurses who would like to hold all the tubes and wires and stuff and to flip the purse, the patient and get them back. And so thinking about for my mom at the end, they were having to rotate her every two hours. And it was like a five or six person ordeal that took several minutes. And if you're doing that, you know, once every two hours, for even three or four patients, like it's an enormous undertaking of just that, which helps understand like when I would call and they're like, she just went in there. <laughs> we'll give her a voicemail because they're going to go in and do everything they can before they have to come back out. So they don't have to go back and forth. And it was really, it was, you know, helped uh, set it in a different way. So. I mean, needless to say, like appreciation and gratitude for the, the Scots and everyone out there on the front lines who have to work with patients on the day-to-day -day and have to see that amount of um, trauma on a daily basis, right? Um, yeah. And it just, it just didn't have to, I know we say that a lot and we've said that probably week to week that it just didn't have to be this way. But I mean, <clears throat> my heart is with the families who are grieving like Andy and me, but also with the medical professionals like Scott who are seeing their patients suffer, who are seeing their patients pass on and have to go through um, the hurdles on a day-to-day -day basis just to keep themselves safe as Andy perfectly described the complications of even 
going into a room and grabbing a thing and what that means for, for medical professional. Yeah. Yeah. It is like, it is, it is, um, it's one of the things that I think is really one of the things that make, and, and I had it, and it just, it blows my mind that I still have to have these conversations with people, but I had a patient ask me this week, um, tell me about COVID. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she's like, well, why does it, like, why does it, you, you said you don't want any part of it. Like, why is it like, what, why do people think it's so bad? I said, because it kills people. And she said, well, right. But so do cars. And I was like, well, that's not the same. Um, And so we had this conversation about why. And one of the things that is so unique about, I think it's unique to this disease. There are certainly other conditions and other things that, you know, you know, doctors treat in the hospital that, that do this, but COVID I think has this um, incredibly dehumanizing effect on everything that it touches, both patients and nurses and doctors. And this is something that I, I like knew, but I didn't fully appreciate until um, I haven't really talked about this on the, on the show, but um, I started a few weeks ago um, working some in the hospital um, just because there's um, people are exhausted and doctors are exhausted and doctors and nurses get sick. And so there's, there are um, some of us that are, you know, have um, some experience working in the hospital and are training and, and feel like that's still work that we can do, even though we're primarily in primary care that are, that are helping out in the hospitals. And um, I did my first stint a couple weeks ago. I'll go back uh, to the hospital starting next week, um, taking care of the COVID patients. And man, it's just like, you know, this idea of like trying to like set up as many barriers as you can between yourself and the patient is very like antithetical to everything that we do as doctors and nurses, right? Like, like you're not, you're not taught to stay as far away from the patient as you can. You're not taught to only stay in the room for the minimal amount of time necessary. You're not taught to like not touch the patient unless necessary. (laughs) You're not taught to right Like, you know what I mean? Like this, this, this extreme kind of separation that we have to maintain, which I think obviously society is feeling at large as we're all being told to like social distance and try not to see people outside of our household and, 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 and especially like that's kind of probably feel scared and you can't even really comfort them in the way that you would normally do. Right. Right. Like, you know, that's, and so that's, that's incredibly hard on patients, but it's also, I think the emotional toll of taking care of patients who are really, really sick with COVID is pretty is severe and something that I didn't appreciate until I went to the hospital and started doing it. And I stand just like in awe of my colleagues and friends who've been doing this for weeks and weeks and months and months. Um, I was just flipping through before we started the show. I was flipping through my, my Facebook feed because I'm an old and I have a Facebook account Um and I was going through and like liking posts and I counted up even just like in like 30 seconds, the first seven posts that came up on my feed um, are all people that I went to medical school or residency or both with um, all pictures of them getting their vaccine. And it's just like, it's, it's an amazing and like really like an emotional thing uh, to see when you, you know, especially when you've had a taste of what, these, you know, doctors and, and nurses who pre- predominantly work in the hospital, what they've been doing for, for so long. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Those, no, those photos are definitely encouraging. All right. Well, let's um, pivot rather dramatically away from COVID and we're going to try to end this episode on a high note listeners. So just stick with us. This, this is the low point. Uh, we're going to get a little irreverent. Thing that is a high point for Oklahoma politics. Right. Yeah. Well, we're gonna uh, <laughs> we get past this. We're gonna do a couple of uh, uh, a couple of somewhat irreverent, somewhat humorous stories about Oklahoma politics, and then we will end um, with uh, us sharing, you know, some kind of highlight from 2020. So we'll figure that out. I literally just thought of that now. So we all have to think of what that thing is. In okay. the next, uh, you know, 30 minutes. All right. Well, so the next thing we want to talk about the challenge is a new story that came out yesterday afternoon at about four 30 and caught a bunch of us by surprise, right? Like, so hats off to, I think Nolan Clay, the Oklahoman who broke this story first. Um, 
but it's about uh, the Governor Stitt's cabinet secretary, the um, secretary of digital transformation, David Ostro. Which was a new position created under the Stitt administration. So that position didn't exist for um, elected governor. Yeah, so he, um, uh, the story is, as reported in the Oklahoman and, and then on non-doc, my dogs are going nuts. <laughs> so essentially, um, David Ostro, who, as you mentioned, um, is a previous, uh, has owned a lot of fast food restaurants here in Oklahoma, was indicted on a felony charge of attempted bribery of an official. Uh, so the allegation is that uh, Secretary Ostro attempted to threaten uh, members of the Oklahoma Tax Commission with a reduction in state appropriations as a way to try and convince them to waive some uh, fines and penalties um, that had been assessed on a company owned by a former state senator, State Senator Jason Smalley. Um, nobody else has been charged. Um, the specific allegation, and this is from the charging document, says that on honor about September 10th, uh, David Ostro did commit the crime of attempted bribery by knowingly and unlawfully attempting to commit the crime of bribery of an official by directing the tax commission that names the specific tax commissioners um, uh, to waive some interest and penalties on uh, this company, JCG Futures, um, and that uh, if they did not do this, appropriations to the tax commission would be withheld. So in other words, if they didn't basically waive the fines and fees that had been assessed on Senator Smalley's businesses, then uh, Mr. Ostro was going to make sure that the tax commission did not get as much money in the next round of state appropriations. So that is, in fact, if that's what happened, that's against the law. Now, the this indictment was handed down by the multi-county grand jury, which is part of uh, the attorney general's office, Attorney General Mike Hunter. Um, but what's interesting is it sounds like when you go through and kind of read what happened, and there's a non-doc article we'll link to in the show notes, um, it sounds like what happened is that uh, Charlie Prater, who is a member of the tax commission, he actually went to the governor and told the governor this is what happened. And then the governor said, I, I recommend that you refer that to the attorney general. Now, this is interesting because I first thought when this happened, I was like, oh, the multi-county grand jury with the AG is indicting one of Governor Stitt's appointees. I was like, you know, like, is this like power politics? going on here is that what's happening but that's clearly not the case because um you know you've got the governor's office is actually one who referred this to the ag and my understanding is the grand jury proceedings are secret so i don't know what happened in the grand jury um but it's assuming that's what happened if the governor referred this to the ag that means that the governor thinks that there's something here you know potentially worth I guess it doesn't mean that the governor thinks that something is worth investigating. It may just mean that the governor is trying to CYA and like, well, hey, I'm going to take my hands off of that and 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 defer to the attorney general. Right. Well, and and often things that go to the attorney general's office don't go to the attorney general himself necessarily. And I don't know how they decide which cases they're going to do or just which ones fall in their jurisdiction. Right. But clearly in this situation. Well, and this it, is this it, is from the multi-county grand jury. I think it is the attorney general who runs that. Right. Um is it, I think if anybody who listens ruling, works for the sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say if anybody who works for the attorney general's office can uh, like tell us that that's not correct, we'll appreciate that. <laughs> well, I think we should ask the solicitor general. We've had him on the show before. He, we should we we should ask the solicitor solicitor general. I think he'll I think he'll uh, I think he would know the answer, and he'll be uh, he'll be more than happy to correct me if I'm if I'm mistaken. Well, and to that end, we've had the AG on the show before. I would be That's interested true. in just learning true. more about how the multi-county grand jury works. Because today, is it, I don't know if it's the multi-county grand jury or a multi-county grand jury, but there was a ruling today from some sort of multi-county grand jury, if it's the same one or not, that um, found a sheriff in some other county guilty of embezzlement and um or they indicted the the sheriff of embezzlement and perjury because he like embezzled it was like thirteen hundred dollars it wasn't a whole bunch of money from the county and then later lied under oath saying he had never embezzled money he'd never been convicted for it and so it was like a double whammy where they're like well you embezzled and then you lied about it yeah and no one knew the this is but the, everyone's finding out right now 
And so I'm, I'm very, now I'm fascinated about how multi-county grand juries work. We'll have to get one of our, uh, our legal experts I'll, to come on the show. I, we, I'll, I wonder if uh, I'll, I can ask the solicitor general if he would be, if he would be willing to, uh, to come on the show. Yeah, we should ask him. If not, we can get uh, Brian Jones again. It's just yeah. really another fascinating look at um, all of the different roots and, and branches of, of how our government operates. And so it's like an extension of even our judicial system to be able to um, do those types of investigations and considerations and holding people accountable in this way. Yeah, yeah. To me, there seems to be three potential outcomes of this. One is, or three potential reasons that the governor recommended this be referred. Either, um, either the governor thinks something dubious happened, right? Like has reason to believe that Secretary Ostro performed in a way that was not legal um, and was concerned about that. Like, so I guess the, I guess to boil it down, the governor thinks he did it and he's guilty. He simply wanted to um, CYA and like has no idea if it did or didn't, but just is like, this is it. Or, um, or he maybe was just like, I don't have time for this. That sounds like a, something for the AG's office to handle with no idea that it would ever reach this point. And now it's like, oh, snap, now it's a thing. And I didn't think it was going to be a thing. Uh, and so it is very interesting to kind of see how this all shakes out. My guess, though, is that mm. too, just because the governor's first two years in office have been full of controversies and um, bumps in the road for him and learning about how governance works and the parameters of his power. And so I think this was a wise decision for him to say, I'm going to, uh, now that I have this information, I'm going to allow it to go through the appropriate channels to ensure that, you know, nothing comes back on, on him because it certainly would have been a very bad look should it have come out that the governor had information about what may or may not have happened and then the governor didn't do anything about it, didn't report or anything. And so it seems to me like a, a proactive approach in, in CYA. That'd be my opinion. <laughs> governor, governor, Stitt, governor Stitt, don't you think this is a problem? Hey, I said, don't worry about it. No, but governor, but, but governor, it seems like this is bad. Hey, I said, don't worry about it. That would be not a good look, and I don't think that's how Governor Stitt sounds. He's not a no. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I don't know what accent that was, but it's not his. That was one, especially with um, the reporting that uh, the Frontier has uh, done in combing through a lot of public records on things. I think he's learned that things that you say can be recorded <laughs> and come back to bite you in public memory and things, and so. Um, I think it was a wise decision for the governor to to say, I'm going to let this play out in the appropriate channels and the appropriate investigations to take place. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, in other Oklahoma government news, the race for Senate District 22 um, is, and I don't always say heating up, but it's about to heat up in a hurry, right? So, um, this is the Senate seat in Northwest Oklahoma City, West Edmond, Piedmont, over to Yukon, kind of, kind of loops around the north side of the Kilpatrick Turnpike up there. Uh, and this is the seat previously held by State Senator Stephanie Bice, who is now Congresswoman-elect Stephanie Bice. Uh, so they got to fill the seat. And there were a, a handful of Republicans and two Democrats who filed for the seat. And, you know, after candidate filing come candidate challenges, right? And, and candidates can really, I think anybody can challenge other candidates, challenge their candidacy. Um, as it turns out, two of the Republican candidates challenged each other's candidacy on the same grounds. They both, Rob Johnson and um, um, somebody, Matthews, um, Derek Matthews, 
um, both challenged each other's candidacy by saying that neither of them met the residency requirement for running. And that requirement is you are supposed to, or you're required to live in the district uh, be and be registered in that district in the same party for the six months leading up to candidate filing. And that is a six months consistently. Uh, and so they challenged with slightly different issues uh, or com complaints. And so it went to, uh, I went to the um, election board, I guess is who reviews it. And if you guys remember back when we had candidate filing early in 2020 for all the, the seats um, all the, the all the house seats and all the Senate seats are up. There's a whole bunch of challenges. Some folks just pull their name off anyway. Some of them went to really outrageous hearings, right? With um, Kevin Mc, uh, Representative McDougal, you know, alleging that people live out of state, even and saying a guy lives in Colorado, and and it seemed from those like the residency requirement was very loosely interpreted. Like it was pretty the guy admitted that he lived, he had breakfast in Colorado 90% of the time. Um, and basically he lives that. And they called in like um, witnesses and, um, you know, someone who lived in a structure between his house and this other guy's uncle's house. Like it was just, a, you know, smell of urine. There was all kinds of weird theatrics. claims. Yes, it was theatrics. It was super bizarre. And uh, so, someone's angry ex-wife called and she was like, I remember fighting with you at that address on this date. And it's like, that's not real evidence. And what gets me is that there are a lot of things you have to prove your residency, right? Like utility bills and all that stuff. And here we are like calling people who like saw you drive through Taco Bell at 2 a.m. and can vouch that you live in the area or something. So in this situation for Senate District like, 22, Scott. I just... If you don't live somewhere, then why why do you want to run for office to represent that place? Like is it just is it just like power? You want to feel important? Is it like like I don't understand like if Maybe you live you in Colorado 90% of the time, then just run for office in Colorado. Like if you live in Colorado, that's fine. Run for office in Colorado. But he didn't. He didn't say live there. He just had breakfast there. Maybe it's a really good breakfast joint. I don't know. Well, hot damn. I mean, I mean, like, I mean. I, well, let's say Scott that you live here in Oklahoma City, and if you had a, I don't know, a lake house, a cabin down on Lake Eufaula somewhere, right? You own property in both places, and you want to run for office. You're going to run for office in the place you think you have the best shot at winning, right? And you're going to try to bend the rules or. <laughs> or just file and hope nobody notices. Um, and, and right, I get all that, but even to me, that's even that's still different, right? Like that's like you're at least like even. I mean, I'm not I'm not advocating that. And for the record, I don't. To my chagrin, I don't own a vacation home anywhere. Um, but um, <laughs> you know, but I, I don't even even that though is different than like at least you're still in the Oklahoma state legislature, right? Voting on like laws that impact Oklahomans as opposed to like spending 90% of your mornings in Colorado. Oh, and then, right. I mean, right. like if you, I just, and again, I'm not advocating that anybody buy a vacation home so they can run for office where their vacation home is. But even that is different to me because it's at least in the same state. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so with this race, no one believes that that uh, former senator uh, and candidate Rob Johnson lives in Colorado, nor do they think that uh, Derek Matthews lives in Colorado. But Derek Matthews' attorney did allege that Rob Johnson lives in his old boss's she shed. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine saying that phrase in court, first of all. I had to read it a couple of times to figure out that it said she shed. It wasn't a... a typo i this is like the like the state farm she shed right so i guess yeah this is the the feminine equivalent to a man cave i believe is the where the name came from um and they uh, so according to google it's a she shed is a female man cave 
Why isn't the man cave a masculine she shed? A he shed? A he, I, I don't know. He, he, he shed, she sheds down by the seashore. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, Rob Johnson uh, had Robert McCampbell as his attorney. And listeners may remember that name because he has often been the attorney of choice for I will say the Republican establishment. Um, and and he is, you know, personally, he was the attorney for the opposition to people, not politicians, ballot measures. So I got to see the man in action in the Supreme Court several times. He actually trained, like there's only like a handful of attorneys that do ballot initiatives in the state. And they all like were trained by the same people. So um, Kent Myers was like the main guy. He, he's getting up there in years. He trained McCampbell and Melanie Brugani. They used to work together. Then McCampbell left to open his own shop. And so now they just work on opposite sides. And it's so if anyone out there is a, a budding attorney and you want to get into constitutional law, there's a few openings. Um, so yeah, so this is heating up. And at the end result of this, right, is that both candidates got thrown off the ballot, essentially. And everyone was kind of shocked by this, um, given how the hearings have gone in the past. Now, there's still a path for them to get on the ballot, right? They can appeal? I think so. I'm pretty sure they can appeal. Um, and I would expect that of the two, that Rob Johnson would appeal. He was the, the reason this is also notable is that these two candidates were the heavy favorites for this race. They, um, Rob uh, was previously uh, the state senator from before that district. Yeah, before term limits. Uh -huh. um, and his dad also represented that district way back. Uh, and before him back, I mean, the shape was different. Now this district excludes Kingfisher, but I think back then it included Kingfisher or vice versa. Uh, but that's where they're from. Uh, I believe their family is, there's a big Johnson, like Otto Johnson Ford or something, auto dealership up in Okarchie and Kingfisher. And I think that's them. And his dad was like a judge or something too. Uh, so they've, it's one of those dynasty families. And so I think he was the heavy favorite. Um, Rob has been a lobbyist for the last few years. Um, and, and then Derek Matthews is an executive with U.S. Fleet Tracking, which is a pretty big company, and they've been pretty influential in the legislature. So these are two heavy hitters. On the Democratic side, I, I forget the two candidates' names. One is Molly Uten. That's right. And then um, and I think she's working with Skyfire. And then the other candidate is working with Aaron Wilder for the consultant. And Aaron was Mari Turner's consultant. And so um, it's, I think both sides are showing up. And this is one of those districts that's, I don't know that it's really purple, but it's like a, it's like a lighter red than some, right? You guys think, I have a hard time. People keep saying that because it's close to the metro. But that part of the state, I don't think it's, it's still pretty red. Yeah, still pretty red area. Um, just because it's more of the Canadian County. Yeah. Side. Yeah, Piedmont, um, Yukon. Mm-hmm. I mean, that district is why Stephanie Bice is going to be the congresswoman, not Kendra Horn, right? Like, so I don't know that yeah, that's like, right. like I don't know. I mean, like that, like that Senate district within CD five is a big part of the reason and enthusiasm for. For Senator Bice is a big part of the reason why she won that race. So I understand why people say that. And I'm certainly not gonna say like this is not a this is not you know, this is not an 85, 15, 90, 10, like some of the districts you might get out in in kind of western yeah. Oklahoma. But like um, but the idea that this is like, I mean, I I don't know, I would I would I would question anybody who says that like, oh, this is like a toss-up purple, you know like kind of split down the middle district. I don't think that's accurate at all. Yeah. Well, um, the other thing that's, that is interesting about this is that redistricting happens in just a few months. Yeah. And so whoever runs for this seat will be elected in uh, the spring, right? Just a couple of months before the districts are redrawn. And I haven't, Bet you we could try to pull up the candidates' home addresses because it's on their filing paperwork, yeah. 
and plot them in the district. Um, because even though both chambers have said that they will consider where incumbents live when they redraw the districts, if a Democrat wins, I would not be entirely surprised if they were like, oh, sorry, well, we just had to draw the district to reflect the changing demographics and cut somebody out, like if they're on the edge or something, um, yeah. because it's a, the population in this district has grown, and so the district is going to have to shrink, right, um, right. to to maintain the the equity there and or the equality of population size. So mm -hmm. it's like one of the, this is why, if I ever ran for office, I would, I can almost guarantee I would not run in a year that ends in zero because the next, the district's going to get re redrawn the next year. And that can really uh, screw with things a little bit. Like Absolutely. that's my two cents. All right. Well, we got a few minutes um, left here. Another thing, uh, Bailey, you just pointed this out that this actually goes back to the vaccine schedule, right? That the uh, governor announced today or the board of education that they are scrapping the A through F grading scale for schools and teachers. Um, and just for this year. Just for this year. So just mm -hmm. like, we're going to take them all again and just no one's, we're not going to grade schools this year because everyone got through it and that's <laughs> however they did it. That's fine. I think that's a fair decision, don't you? I I think the Aether upgrading system should go indefinitely. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm happy to at least see them consider the challenges that districts and teachers and the distress that students had to go through in surviving the school year, especially from the flux of in-person, now you know, virtual, in-person, now virtual, um, having um, a six-year-old stepdaughter and then seeing her frustration of having to do so much homework and then us trying to to help keep her motivated and doing it was really tough. And so I can only imagine how so many households felt and, and the stress that teachers and also students were, were feeling in this time. And so it's definitely the right decision that can hopefully help raise some morale in, in, in school districts. Yeah. So this is scrapping A through F for the students, not the dis not the, the not the the schools. The schools. Oh, yeah. okay. I was like, I thought it was for the schools. Are you tell me we just got no. rid of grades? No, I mean, no, there is a based on right. test scores and, and different indicators. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's the confident. school grading system is garbage. Like the, yeah. I thought the school grading system is garbage for a while. But now I know there is a, there are those who work in education policy and know way more about it than I do who think that we should get rid of grades. But like I didn't know that like we had taken that step. So yeah. yes, good that they have uh, good that they have gotten rid of the A through F grading system for schools because that is a bunch of nonsense that we should have never done. Well, to begin with, they may bring it back next year. Opinion. Right? Who knows? But also, I think when they make changes like this, often we see them be like, "Well, you know, while we got this paused, why don't we take another look at it?" And they'll just reconfigure it somehow and. Probably make it worse. You know what I it's believe. It's no longer them. A through F. It's one through five. That's right. That's right. Three stars. Two that's right. <laughs> <laughs> How many apples do you get? Um, so, in a in a related move, um, the governor announced today that teachers are moving up on the vaccine schedule from tier three to tier two. However, they did point out that the lines between the tiers are fluid. And somebody put on Twitter like a graphic that basically <laughs> listed out the, the three phases and teachers are in the same spot. They just like changed the color. So instead of being yellow tier three, they are green tier two. And my point about tiers, this is my issue about this, this scale, this phase scale and any others about anything, vaccines or not. If you have multiple phases, but each of those phases has sub phases like phase 1A, 1B, 1C, 2A, 2B, 2C. And it's going in a somewhat linear fashion. You don't have three phases. You have like 13 phases, right? Like, let's just, I know that 13 phases sounds worse and it's simple to say this, but if it's, if, if all of these people are in phase one, why not just put them in phase one, especially when it comes to like public facing documents like this, right? I don't understand why it went out in the first place. Anytime there's a public ranking of yeah. who matters most in society, it's never a good idea. Right. <laughs> Do you remember in um, eight, 10, 12, 12 years ago, 
all the discussion about death panels, right? This was like when there was federal legislation being proposed about um, big changes to healthcare. And they were saying, you know, um, this probably was leading up to Obamacare, right? And they were like, they're going to make, um, you know, there'll be panels to decide who receives what services or whatever their policy and the opposition branded them as death panels. Like these are going to decide who lives and who dies. And yet here we are still deciding who gets a life-saving vaccine and who doesn't, or like not who doesn't, but who is deprioritized. Yeah. And who will get it the soonest. Yeah. Now we know that there's going to be more deaths. There's going to be more people having to go to the hospital over the next four or five months until the vaccines can be widely distributed. And so it is a priority ranking of who has to come first in, in society. And so there's this collective idea in our American psyche that yes, healthcare workers need it. They deserve to have it. But then when you start going through the other yeah. pieces of the phased list, it's like, hold on, but why is this group more important than this group? And, and so it creates this unnecessary distraction yeah. Um, yeah. that could have been worked internally and we could have celebrated, you know, once different groups started getting vaccines, you know, on the back end more so than having a conversation about why is uh, our elected leaders getting this before teachers or why is this group getting it before this group? And so that, it, was, it, that was the big thing, though, when they were like elected leaders ahead of teachers and, and every teacher in the state was like, hold up. Like, I get that you have to make laws. But what have you been doing this whole time? How many people are in your classroom? Zero. You don't have a classroom. I got, you know, yeah. 20 kids. Well, so especially with this big push of like, everybody needs to go back to schools. We need to go back to in-person five days a week, you right. know, consistency. And it's like, you're saying we need to go back, but we're really low on this priority list to, to get the vaccine. Like, which one is it? So, well, um, and the the graphic they put out says like whatever tier, I think it's in tier three, which says essential businesses. And in parentheses, it's like, which includes most businesses. And I was like, well then it, again, like our ranking of, of who is essential and who is not has failed. Like this whole, this whole year we've been trying to rank who is most important in society. Like in, in that, well, I mean, inevitably means they, they, they get pitted against others. Yeah. And part of this is that the governor never wanted to shut down anything anyway, right? Like if Governor Stitt had his way, we would never we would never have shut down or closed anything. And so one thing he could do was basically say, Well, we're gonna shut down, uh, but every every business is essential. So, you know, we're gonna make sure that you, you know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, this is yeah. you know, it's I mean, like he said in the presser yesterday or the day before, whatever it was, that like teachers need to be, you know. We, we need kids to be in school. For me, that's non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. That's non-negotiable. But it's also non-negotiable that you're going to do anything with bars and restaurants. And it's also non-negotiable that you're going to do a mask mandate. It's also mm -hmm. non-negotiable, right? Like, everything's fucking non-negotiable, right? Like, we didn't know, because he wants to, like... Aside, we didn't talk about the fact that the governor's being sued by um, some bars and restaurants about the fact that he was closing them at 11. And like, not just soon, right. there was a bar, I believe, in Midwest City or Dell City um, that yeah. was going to host a strike after 11 to protest the fact that the governor has that restriction because they feel like the governor is just picking on bars and restaurants without. This is when they're that, that mm -hmm. they're picking on bars and restaurants without evidence um, and that they're hurting their businesses and, and those who work for them because they're not able to make money and make ends meet uh, right. because they can't work during the time that people tend to go to bars and restaurants. So which I like I get, I mean, like I, we've talked about this before on the show. Like if I had taken out a $500,000 or a million dollar small business loan to open a restaurant or a bar, you know, and opened in January of 2020. And that was like where, that's where all my cards are and my savings, right? Like, and then the government tells me like, oh yeah, you have to shut down, but also we're not going to give you any money to try and like be able to pay your mortgage or your loan. I mean, right. I, and then I, you I, I, I put no and, and the stadiums, yeah. thousands of people gathering. 
It's just not a good look. With with very few exceptions, I put no I put no blame at the feet of people who own bars and restaurants because they got to pay their bills just like I do. Um, the the blame the the policy failure here is that the is at the feet of our elected leaders here locally, but also nationally. Um, but it's just I you know I know the whole vaccine thing. It's very I I don't know I don't I I don't know what the right way to handle the vaccine rollout and the priority. Cause it's one of those deals that like, this is a problem we're not used to confronting very often in the U S um, at least not quite in this way where we have this thing that like everybody's going to need, right? Like a flu shot, right? We have flu shots every, you know, every year and we encourage everybody to get a flu shot every year, but we like for the most part always have plenty of them, right? Like no one, you know, no one who wants a flu shot doesn't get one. Or if we're out of flu shots, like we'll have more next week, right? Like it's not a, you know, but this is this thing that like everybody wants and everybody needs. And we're only going to have X amount at a time. And so how do you decide? Like who do you do? Do you do you do, you do the people that are most at risk of exposure? Do the people who are most at risk of severe uh, infection due to the people that are most at risk of death. Do you do some combination of those? Like, you know, I'm not obviously involved in any of those kind of discussions about who gets the vaccine when, um, but talking to people that are, I think it, I think it is, it is, it is something I think that a lot of organizations and a lot of government, governmental entities are, are struggling with. And, um, yeah, I think it's this is this is one of those things that is you don't expect. This is one of those decisions you don't expect to have to make. Um and because of that, I think we both as a society and our leaders who we've entrusted to make these decisions, neither of those groups were prepared for, right? Like our leaders were not expected to have to figure out how to ration medical care and our society was not prepared to have care be rationed either but that's where we are that's true but i think there has to be thoughtfulness and strategy on communicating why people are getting it when right it's obvious and understandable why healthcare workers were the number one priority right because we've heard over and over again over the past several months about how hospitals and medical professionals have been overwhelmed you know, how they're on the front lines, um, even the descriptors about the layers of, you know, PPE they have to put on in order just to do their jobs and things on a day-to-day basis. Sure. So I think the public understood that. But when you just send out yeah. a generic and it says congregate settings and churches and lawmakers and other things right. are you know, going to be at this priority, Why are they? Yeah. it doesn't feel like it's based right. in like science or rationality. It's like... Right. That causes confusion among the public. And so I think it just created more heartache. And so I think it's information that didn't necessarily have to be communicated in the way that it did. And if it was a more strategic way, or even if they would have been silent about the list and then just started saying, these groups, come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, (laughs) that could have been easier on on minds. No, I think that's, yeah, totally. Totally. But well, um, as we wrap up here, let's end on a high note then, right? Let's think about something thinking back to 2020, what a year it has been. I've appreciated Bailey, this is your first full year on the podcast. Great to have you. And I'm grateful I made the decision to to join you each week. I feel like I I become more knowledgeable about what's going on in the state. Um and I've read mm-hmm. even um, emails, Andy, that you've received and messages on social media from people who say, um, actually, this really happened um, several months ago, whenever um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, um, we had an outdoor uh, vigil for her with the Oklahoma Women's Coalition. 
and I had my mask on and everything. We're all outside. And this woman heard my voice because she didn't even see my face because my glasses and the mask were, you know, covering. And she said, I knew your voice because I listened to Let's Pause It. And I knew that you were Bailey. And that felt really good that A, um, people are tuning in and listening to us, even though sometimes we feel like, thanks to the two or three listeners <laughs> here. Um, <laughs> right, but the right. fact that we're able to help people understand what's going on and give them um ways to think about um what's happening in our state and what's happening nationally that that matters to them is is a good feeling so i appreciate you giving me the chance to to talk with you each week about important stuff we appreciate you being here it's always a good perspective and as listeners have probably surmised from all of our conversations the three of us are constantly texting and putting on slack as we kind of um prepare for each week's episode and I have personally enjoyed those conversations a lot. Sometimes we have to censor those for the show because they are for private consumption, but um, it is nice sure. getting everyone's like hot takes on these things before we have a chance to really stew on them. So it's uh, nice to kind of share those. Um, so thanks for being here. I, I will say for me uh, personally, this has been a year of ups and downs, right? So as we, you know, <laughs> we started the year in February with, uh, the birth of our daughter, Margot, And, you know, in, that was in first week in February. And who knew then what the rest of the year would hold. Um, but to have my daughter born in the first month or second month of the year and my, my own mother pass away uh, this month, it has been quite definitively a roller coaster of a year. So uh, on the whole, I will say like working from home and getting to spend that much time with Margot. Um, is a gift that I'm very thankful for. Everything else considered, that uh, that was uh, has been wonderful. And she had her first snow last week. She well, did. This week. Yeah, this week. Yeah. <laughs> we carried her outside and she immediately put her tongue out. Like she knew what to do. She was just <laughs> uh, wanted to catch the snow on her tongue. So that was real cute. Scott, um, how about you? Man, <clears throat> that's... That's hard. I don't. You, you moved. Um, Did you guys buy your house? Was that this year? Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's that was this year. That's probably that's probably it. So um, it was in November of 2011. Um, Ashley and I bought our first home. Um, I had just finished medical school and started residency, and it was crazy because at the time I was um, I was an intern, which um, means I worked a lot and you know was learning a lot and i was on my, one of my first icu rotations and we closed on our house and moved and it was like we were living in boxes it felt like for years and years and years and that was a great it was a great first house for us um we loved it made a lot of great memories but decided uh it was funny we had we had decided uh in august of 2019 for a number of reasons that we felt like it was time to make a change out of our house and it was like okay it was one of those deals. We were, we were, it was a Friday night. We were, we were sitting at Osteria actually uh, here in town and uh, had been out with some friends and we were having some wine and talking about just life and the future. And we we're like, okay, well, so we probably need to sell the house, which means that probably we, if we were going to get the house on the market in early 2020, we'd have to do the renovations then, which we have to start packing then. And we, it was one of those deals where we're like, oh, so we need to start packing tomorrow. <laughs> like we were like working backwards in this timeline and it was like, and so we, it was like a six month ordeal, but we got our renovations done and kind of got the house, the market sold, moved into an apartment and then bought our current house um, in May and moved in in July and absolutely um, have loved being here. We're very, we're not in the exact same neighborhood, but we're close. We did the classic Oklahoma city thing where we moved like 12 blocks, uh, <laughs> you know, so we, um, you know, it's, uh, still kind of down here in the middle, in the middle of the city where we, where we love to be, but that's, I would say our, our, the highlight for sure of our year would be, uh, the purchase of our new house. And then, um, yeah, just, you know, COVID is obviously this terrible thing, um, that put all of us very isolated, but I, I feel like I've had relationships that have actually grown deeper, um, through, living through coronavirus. I mean, 
both of you would fall in that list. Andy, you and I have been close for a number of years, but I feel like we've gotten even closer this year as as per usual. And Bailey, to to get to know you better and become closer friends with you and now consider you one of my dear people, I um, that's been wonderful for me. So and then just and then other people that, you know, the as we have to kind of compartmentalize, I think that that has in some ways allowed for some deepening. So I'll I'll never say that I'm grateful for COVID, but I'm grateful that that's something that that's one thing that's come out of it. So does that make any sense at all? It, it makes does, a lot yeah. of sense. Andy, thank you for this exercise. I think it's so important to remember that there are some glimmers of good and hope that we need to hold on to from 2020. Yeah. So Yeah. Of course. Listeners, Thank you. We wouldn't be here without you. I mean, literally, otherwise we're just talking to ourselves. So I, my hope is that you all have a lovely holiday weekend. We will probably take two weeks off and come back after the first of the year, um, refreshed and rejuvenated um, with new theme music. And we're going to hit 2021 right in the teeth and just um, hit it going from, from the very first week. So uh, get some rest, be kind to yourselves, to your loved ones. Um, you know, stay safe out there. We'll see you next year. Mm-hmm.